Welcome to KLCC's Northwest Passage podcast. For this special series, we've been looking at the Black Lives Matter movement in Eugene and Springfield. I'm Rachel McDonald, KLCC News Director. I'm reporter Elizabeth Gabriel. And I'm reporter Nathan Bouquet. We were seeing a protest or some other event on a daily basis for about a month after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis ignited a national response to police brutality and killing of black people. The protests are still going on here in Eugene, but they've become more of a two to three time a week thing. Elizabeth, you reported on a protest held Wednesday night by Black Unity. Will you tell us what happened? Yeah, so even in these social media callouts advertising that groups are going to have a protest, groups like Black Unity, BIPOC are really asking for more people than they have before. They're saying they want this next protest to be the biggest that they've ever had, but I they're just not really seeing those numbers. The numbers of protesters have really just stayed around 200 people each time. And so I'm wondering if that's one of the reasons that groups are having less protests now. I think they're just trying to rebound from protest fatigue. Groups such as Black Unity are trying to have more caution, especially after Isaiah Wagner's hit and run. Stay tight. As well as protesters driving up to support those in Portland, which is largely what last night's protest was about, which was just showing their solidarity with that group. And so throughout the night, one of Black Unity's leaders, Jasmine Delilah, actually spoke about her experiences driving to Portland to support those protesters. She talks about Donovan LaBella being like shot in the face and just... I mean, it's pretty crazy just to hear her account of like being tear gassed almost immediately at the beginning of the protest. When we were going back towards the courthouse and the JC after um, they had gassed us away yet another time. And then having to witness Donovan LaBella's nose being pushed back. He had to get face reconstruction surgery and skull surgery and brain surgery. He's, they're also looking for somebody to work on his left eye because he's very unresponsive. And then like having to escort him out of the line of fire, essentially, and then trying to go back to advocating for people's rights. Do you get the sense, Elizabeth, that one of the reasons maybe the attendance here in, in Eugene is, is a little lower is because people are heading up to Portland? That's what it sounds like. I don't know exactly how many people are going out there, but it does sound like a decent amount of like Black Unity and BIPOC protesters are going up to Portland. Jasmine Delilah mentioned Portland's so close, it's only like two, three hours away. We consider that our community in addition to Eugene and Springfield. Nathan, you covered two different events on a recent Friday, and one was held by BIPOC Liberation Collective. It was a march that started in Monroe Park in Eugene. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I showed up about 10 minutes before the start of the event, and it was pretty interesting because it was very calm at the park, and I noticed people began to filter in, kind of from all directions. Uh, there was about 20 people that that came and surrounded the perimeter of the park and uh, were facing outward. They were armed with assault rifles and marksman rifles, and they were dressed head to toe in black, you know, so... Right off the bat, the person with the megaphone, who was clearly in charge of the event, was telling the group that had shown up that people are here purely for the protesters' defense. It's a little bit, you know, nerve-wracking uh, to 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 be a part of that and to see what was going on around us like that. Just uh, a few, maybe 15 minutes later, after the man with the megaphone gave the speech, 
we began to march and the BIPOC Liberation Collective is known to not be very open to media coverage um, and having their photos and you know their faces in videos for safety and anonymity reasons. They could clearly tell I was a reporter. I was following on the kind of the side of the march and as they were chanting and marching down the street. I was told by multiple people that you know I needed to put my phone away or I needed to put my audio recording away just because uh, they didn't want to they didn't want to have any coverage on them. So um, I was essentially shooed away from that march uh, as a reporter and it, w- it became pretty hard for me to follow because there was a lot that I needed to keep my eye on. There's people watching from the sidewalks just in the surrounding neighborhoods and also, you know, very armed people marching alongside this group. So it's definitely a scene. And Nathan, I understand that the intent that evening was to go to different local businesses that hadn't, I guess, adequately expressed their support for the Black Lives Matter movement and sort of make some noise outside? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Speaker said right off the bat that the the protests being held was Uh, an anti-racism and an anti-capitalism march, and that the purpose of the march was to show how those two concepts went hand in hand. So he went on to say that they were going to march to businesses in the surrounding area. So you did reach out to one of the businesses that had been targeted by this group. What did they tell you? Right. I Reportedly, they went to the New Frontier Market, which is pretty close to Monroe Park. And so I ended up calling the store and got a hold of the owner. Talked to him for about 20 minutes, and he, he kind of went into detail about the store's political kind of leaning and things like that, and he felt that the attention that BIPOC gave his store, they, you know, walked into there and with a megaphone and started yelling at the employees and a few of the customers that were in there. There was people outside chanting and riding on the sidewalks with chalk. He said that this was just an unwarranted kind of attack on his store. I'm just curious, Nathan, was he targeted simply because he hadn't put a Black Lives Matter sign in his window? Precisely. Um, to his knowledge, that was that was why his store was targeted, because they hadn't put up the, the necessary um, support for the Black Lives Movement. So that's why he felt that it was unjust, just because he was never even, he said he was never even asked, asked about his views about it, you know, or his employees, you know, they haven't been, they haven't been talked to about anything like that. So mm-hmm. it was just kind of out of nowhere one, one random Friday evening for him. I think it's interesting that that's his response because, I mean, given everything that's going on, I think there's very much, I think people are wanting others to take that initiative themselves instead of waiting for employees or a protest group to come and confront them. And so it's interesting, I think it's interesting that that's the response he gave. Well, on the other hand, though, I mean, in a time of pandemic, in a time when businesses are struggling, it seems like um, targeting somebody just because they haven't put out that sign, you know, seems a little bit odd, you know, because maybe if maybe they could have approached it in a different way and made a phone call and just said, hey, I noticed you didn't put up a sign instead of going out there and sort of what seems to me like harassment of a local business. It seems a little bit extreme to me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, like, harassment is not <laughs> okay. Um, I just, I don't know. I mean, like, I can't imagine being a business owner right now and just trying to navigate, like, how do I not get harassed by protest groups, but how do I support or not support this group? Because even if businesses do support these groups, they could face retaliation from customers who don't support those groups. So I feel like it's a slippery slope. And so 
I don't know. I think, again, business owners just need to be more conscious of what's happening and kind of be more prepared. But it's kind of hard to do that, you know, with everything Mm -hmm. going on. So, yeah. And I think, you know, this this kind of connects with the uh, methodology used by especially the BIPOC group, which seems to be in that they have gone to city councilors and the mayor's house also and made noise outside because they haven't gotten exactly what they want from city leaders yet. I mean, this particular method, I don't know how effective it really is because it's, it's in some ways sort of trying to extort this change that they want as quickly as they want on their timeline, on their terms, by harassing lawmakers. It's very hard to gauge the effectiveness of those types of strategies and especially policy change city leaders, city officials, it takes more time than, you know, they can't just make a snap decision on the spot because there's protesters outside of their house. I'm interested to see the, you know, in the upcoming weeks, if there's going to be more protests in the same fashion with the same methodology. I guess really only time will tell, but, you know, we have reporters covering that, so uh, (laughs) we'll be able to to find out firsthand, that's for sure. So just to jump to um, another protest that you actually covered that same night, Nathan, in Springfield, you were on double duty and you headed over to Springfield for what was called an All Lives Matter event. And that got pretty heated. Yeah, that's right. After leaving the BIPOC march, I headed over to the Springfield Public Library to see what was going on. And it was a pretty big event. There was at least 150 people congregated into this area that's not really not that big. And um, that raises a lot of flags because it's uh, also the pandemic is happening and there's a lot of people not wearing masks very close quarters, and there was a lot of expression happening, that's for sure. We had people up there talking, you know, to the big group just about, like, the political movements and the divisiveness of, like, the Black Lives Matter movement, which was really interesting to hear. And it was actually, um, the speaker was a black man himself, so it was just an interesting event, to say the least. And there was also counter-protesters across the street. From what I know, a lot of them lived in Springfield as well. So it was a very mixed message from the community uh, about their feelings towards political movements that have been happening. I I recorded a clip from one of the speakers, Marcus Edwards, who was talking about the sort of divisiveness of the Black Lives Matter movement. We're we're for their freedom of speech. We're for them protesting. But when they disrespect the flag and they harm our businesses and our citizens, that is where we draw the... What was it like listening to Marcus Edwards? Because we haven't really had... I don't think we've had a single black conservative come out in the Eugene Springfield area. So, I mean, in general, I feel like they're kind of unicorns. But I feel like especially here... Um, I was just very surprised to see him leading that protest. Yeah, it was certainly certainly pretty unexpected. Um, I gotta say, I've been covering a lot of protests, and um, I've been in a few myself. And you know, the speakers are they're definitely motivated, but uh, there's no one that I could see rally a group of 150 to 200 Springfieldians like Marcus Edwards. He was like supercharged. And he was, uh, he spoke very well, and he got a lot of people very fired up, you know, it, towards his message. And he would go back and forth from literally reading Bible verses to getting those protesters to say, hey, all lives matter, but also, like, black lives matter, you know, for the people in the back. He'd say, for the people in the back, because we really believe this too, black lives matter. 
and then he would go on to say chant things like all for one, one for all. Just things to get these people fired up, and I feel like it was generally pretty effective. I think it's interesting that you said that he kind of led the group more, like he was really like charged and energized. Because when I've gone to previous pro-police protests, the group is there and, you know, you can obviously tell the difference between the two sides, but there's not like a clear leader. There's not really the amount of energy on the pro-police side compared to the anti-police side. So I'm wondering if Marcus Edwards will be showing up at more protests in the future. Yeah, I'm curious to see that as well. And I I do have to add that there was a huge police presence of Springfield police at this uh, All Lives Matter protest. And they were certainly getting involved with scraps between protesters and counter-protesters. There's a lot of screaming going on. And in some cases, I watched a man walk into the the All Lives Matter protest side and he pretty much got assaulted and uh, knocked out cold and was later arrested. That was the the fellow with the accordion? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I actually have, I had a, a video and audio of that too. Yeah, the it was interesting to see the reception of the police from the counter-protester side and the protester side. It seemed very obvious that the police were very pro All Lives Matter as, you know, they were chanting things like, Blue Lives Matter. I even witnessed a policeman give the speakers kind of up on the pedestal there a big box of shirts that said, back the blue, which were then passed out to the protesters. And it very much seemed like the Springfield police were, you know, watching out for that side and making sure that they were staying safe. They weren't getting arrested. They weren't doing anything felonious. (laughs) And uh, yeah, as for the counter protesters, they were witnessing this and they were shocked and getting very angry at the police for what was what was going on right in front of them. Was there a presence of firearms there as well from the All Lives Matter folks? Yes, yes, there actually was. From what I saw, though, they were a lot less militarized than what I saw at the, the Monroe Park BIPOC march. While they were definitely packing some heat, I saw mostly just handguns that were holstered. In one case, I did see a gentleman with uh, what looked like an assault rifle kind of walking around the outskirts of the All Lives Matter protester side, but he was practicing total trigger safety and stuff. He didn't seem to be a threat. It was more seeming like a, you know, a right to bear arms type of stance he was taking rather than like, I'm here to defend this group of people. And again, it sounds like the folks that were, you know, in this in this group were also not necessarily observing social distancing or wearing masks to prevent the spread of COVID-19? Most people, I would say, on the All Lives Matter side were not wearing masks, which was pretty bizarre to see considering for the last four or five months that's what everyone's been doing. But, you know, I was wearing mine and it was definitely hard to practice the social distancing aspect of it, but I was being very wary of people getting too close quarters and potentially spreading this virus that we've had going around. Well, I just really want to say how much I appreciate that that you guys are being careful and I hope I really hope you stay safe out there. <laughs> really do. Thank you. Yeah, thanks Rachel. <laughs> so, coming up on Monday, July 20th, the Eugene City Council will meet to talk about creating a task force to work on addressing the demands from protesters with the BLM movement and from community members. And I spoke with Mayor Lucy Venice about how the city of Eugene has responded. I think the 
core message is a message that actually probably as a community we all agree with, which is that we would like to live in a community in which we robustly invest in healthcare, in housing, in education, in employment opportunities, and did that so effectively that we have a lesser need for police response, right? It reduces the tensions that come with with poverty, with lack of access to health care, with lack of access to mental health care, with a growing addiction issue. I think that Venice feels like the city is doing what it can to respond to this movement. And she's expressed that she's really been trying to sort of educate the community about how government works, that you can't simply turn a switch and turn off funding to police. So it'll be interesting to see how this process goes forward because it's not going to be a quick fix. But I think the at least the message from city leaders is that change takes time and you have to be deliberate and thoughtful with it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... I get what Mayor Lucy Venice is trying to say. I think even on a personal level for me, it's just been very frustrating to hear the city's responses, even from the beginning of the protest, because the beginning started with them denouncing racism. Well, that's great. You you said that racism is not welcome in Eugene. That's fantastic. However, racism doesn't just go away. Like all of the racists aren't going to just like stop being racist because the mayor said so. So I guess that's my frustration with her, not that you asked for this, but that's my frustration with the city's responses because, again, we just haven't really seen anything other than denouncing racism and saying it's bad. And I'm not saying that the city should just like quickly implement these different policies, and I'm not saying that they need to just drastically do that right now, but the community needs to see something other than just these statements that don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think what you're expressing is probably what a lot of community members agree with. Yeah, that work session on Monday ought to be very interesting. I'm actually just very glad you got the chance, Rachel, to speak to Mayor Lucy Venice, Mm -hmm. considering I've had some great difficulties reaching out to city officials in the last couple of weeks here, just to not even to get answers, but just to get just a few words about how some meetings and gatherings have gone. So yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next week. Now, Nathan, you I don't know if you're alluding to the Human Rights Commission meeting that you, you watched that meeting that was online uh, recently, correct? Yes, that happened last week, early last week. And I've been trying to reach out to, you know, different members of the Human Rights Commission just to see if that meeting was successful. The Human Rights Commission is supposedly an advisory body for the city council. And yeah, they held this meeting for seven different Black Lives Matter kind of activist groups to give them a platform to talk directly to city officials. And I haven't been able to contact any of those officials after following that to just see how successful that was, if they've been able to push anything, if they've come up with any proposals to advise to the city council. And it's it's been, uh, it's been pretty difficult and kind of lame, honestly, that I haven't <laughs> been able to get in contact with someone whose job essentially it is to talk to people about what's going on. All right. So if you're listening, remember to return Nathan Bouquet's calls and emails. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get mad. I really will. <laughs> we don't want to, you don't want to see Nathan mad. <laughs> Well, um, I think we can wrap it up at this point, unless there's anything else folks want to touch on. Sorry, I was trying to think of a more (laughs) 
non-biased comment about the meeting, but I can't really think of anything. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think one of the conversations that's happening in journalism right now has to do with covering these issues and the idea of being someone with no bias. And I think that it's helpful to have opportunities like this podcast to have a conversation about what's happening in our world, because while we are approaching our coverage objectively and fairly, and our aim is always to tell the truth, everyone, no matter who you are, has life experiences and backgrounds that affect how they perceive the world. And that's part of what makes us human. And so we can't let that go. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring that up because no one has outwardly accused me of being biased yet, at least, but I would not be surprised if that happened. And, you know, it's never my intention to be biased, but, you know, I am a black female reporter. And so I think that just puts me in a very unique position to cover these BLM movements as well as other movements in support of other people of color. And so I, again, you know, I'm just glad that you brought that up. Yeah. And I think you you were very well spoken about that, Rachel. I know my personal experiences totally influence how I report. And it's definitely tough to, to be completely unbiased as far as the reporting goes. I like to have open discussions about what's going on, but how that affects my writing, it's uh, definitely a, a fine line. I think that, you know, what it comes down to is we all have things in our, you know, you're a black female reporter, Elizabeth. I'm a white female news director. Nathan is a white male. I mean, we all have our backgrounds, and so that in no way should affect our credibility as long as we are seeking to tell the truth and bring balance to our reporting. Exactly. Thanks for joining us for the Northwest Passage podcast. We're recording on Thursday, July 16th, 2020. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm reporter Elizabeth Gabriel. And I'm reporter Nathan Bouquet. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Music for the Northwest Passage podcast is composed and performed by Don Latarski.